Hi, good morning, everybody. Encouraging word for us this morning from Hebrews chapter 11. So if you would turn there, uh, we'll hear what the Lord has to say to our hearts this morning to encourage us in our faith and our walk with him, uh, which is really what the author of Hebrews is doing. I'm really struck by this man's um, kindness. You know, he's said some really challenging things to the believers here throughout this book, his letter, uh, but he really steps back now and just kind of goes through a, a list of what we call uh, heroes of the faith, right? And uh, he's focused our attention so far on Abel, who worshiped God in, the, in spite of the conflict, even within his own family with his brother. Uh, we've been, take a quick look at Enoch, uh, one of the two men in the Bible that never died. He was translated, the Bible tells us. He was taken up alive from this planet into heaven. Uh, and also Noah. Last week we looked at Noah, who lived in the last days, uh, just like you and I. The last days just prior to the Lord's uh, judgment on the whole world. Um, so today we uh, continue on our little journey through this living museum, and we come to Abraham and Sarah. So let's read verse 8. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. That sounds like me. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as a foreign, as any foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed. And when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful, who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of sky, of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, embraced them, confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind the country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. It appears to me that uh, what the author does here, uh, and again, I'll just uh, put it into the terms of, you know, over the church history, this chapter has come on the scene. It's been referred to as the hall of faith, right? So it's, uh, I guess, what we call a, a living museum, and the author essentially is our tour guide, okay? So as he takes us into this museum... Uh, how I picture it is he's, we come to a portrait and there's a con, he makes some comments, you know, about this hero that we're looking at or heroine that we're looking at, Abel and Enoch and Noah. And now he comes to Abraham. This is what I have already said is what I would call a living museum. 
And I'm using that word intentionally because these people are still alive. You know that, right? Abel and Enoch, Enoch, of course, never died, but Noah and Abraham and Sarah are alive today. Jesus settled that score once and for all when he was questioned by the Sadducees, who were rationalists, that is, they had reason but no faith. And they said, how can someone actually be raised from the dead? They denied the resurrection. And Jesus said to them, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living, but of the living. And you know what struck me this morning as I read that again is that Jesus said to them, have you not read what was said to you? Have you not read what was said to you? The scriptures were written for us. And these men who had access to the scriptures would read Exodus and the Lord's like, have you not read what was said to you? When Moses saw the burning bush and God spoke to him out of that bush, he said, I am the God of the living. So this is a living museum. But I happily digress. So I'd like to just sort of set this tone for us. Again, I love museums. I love the experience of learning from our past, on the past. And so the next portrait I will suggest to you takes us a little bit by surprise. It immediately catches our attention because it's different from those that we've already seen. It's different in the sense that as we look at Abraham and Sarah, there's an immediate connection, there's, there's a relatability that we have with them, which was different than even Enoch and Abel and Noah. The way I see this picture, it's, it's one of those of people, in my mind, who have finished a long, grueling obstacle course. They've made it through. They're tired, dirty, sweaty. They've finished the race. They've crossed the finish line, and it's time for pictures. They're all smiles as they stand there, and obviously fatigued, but having finished and successful, a great accomplishment, a huge feeling of satisfaction is written all over the faces of Abraham and Sarah. But in this portrait, it's not just the two of them. There's three of them. The Lord is also in the portrait. At least that's how I want us to think of it. And I'm not stepping out of bounds and spiritualizing here because James as other parts of the Bible have told us, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called the friend of God. So in, in my mind, as I'm looking at the portrait of Abraham and Sarah, I see them on either side of Jesus. And they're just kind of leaning on and leaning in and they're just so appreciative of their friend who has sustained them and walked with them through all their obstacles that they've had to face in their life. So that's the portrait of Abraham that maybe is standing before us at this moment. 
Uh, before I begin, uh, I just want to quote to you a couple of things. One from Stephen, who in Acts chapter 7 gave one of the greatest sermons the church has ever known. And as he faced his accusers, he said, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. He lived in a city called Ur, which is in modern-day Iraq, or was in modern-day Iraq, in the southern portion of Mesopotamia. The God of glory appeared. Now, what that indicates is that God, that Abraham actually saw something of the God of glory, whether God manifested himself as pre-incarnate Jesus, we don't know. But I think the greater impact on his life was not what he saw, but what penetrated his heart and his mind. And that he could live on for the rest of his life. It wasn't just the experience of seeing, is that God revealed himself in all of his majesty and his glory and his character. And that's what caught Abraham's heart and the heart and mind of Sarah. The God of glory appeared to our father when he was in Mesopotamia. The second thing I want to just quote to you is from, I have on my bookshelf, highly recommend for Bible students, the New Illustrated Bible Dictionary, easy read, filled with great information. And in there, it tells us that the archaeologist's shovel has revealed much. Quote, Ur, <laughs> you are, Ur. Ur, Abraham's native city in southern Mesopotamia, an important metropolis in the ancient world situated on the Euphrates River. Abraham lived in Ur at the height of its splendor. Now listen to this. Abraham lived at the height of its splendor. The city was a prosperous center of religion and industry. Thousands of recovered clay documents attest to the thriving business activity. Excavations of the royal cemetery have revealed a surprisingly advanced society. Uncovered were beautiful jewelry and art treasures, including headwear, personal jewelry, and exquisite dishes and cups. Close quote. They were a deeply spiritual people. This is where Abraham grew up. There, were, there was a deity which they called Sin. I'm not joking. <laughs> the god, moon god Sin. More, I think, in Arabic, it might have been translated S-Y-N or S-I-N. Uh, accordingly, the city was a kind of theocracy. This is where Abraham grew up. Needless to say, brothers and sisters... He lived in a very stable and secure and prosperous and familiar and ordered society that was on, in the heart of a very rich and prosperous and, and progressive uh, society and world. This was Abraham's life. And I suggest to you that the conversion of Abraham was one of the most miraculous conversions in all of the Bible. For here's a man who had, at this point, evidently no knowledge of the living God. And yet God appeared to him, and Abraham 
soul out. He put his hand under the plow and he never looked back. And again, it wasn't so much what it, just what he saw, but it was who he saw and the greatness and the character of who he saw. It was the quality and the, and the, and the beauty of, of the character of God himself. He came to know the living God in, in truth, in spirit and in truth. And so verse 8 tells us that by faith Abraham obeyed. Now I'll just tell you what I see here are three things in these first three verses. Speaking of Abraham, we have a couple verses on Sarah. But in Abraham, he obeyed. In verse 9, it says that he dwelt in the land of promise. So let's just say that he obeyed and then he stayed in the land of promise. And then in verse 10, it says he waited for the city whose builder and maker is God. So he obeyed, he stayed, and he never strayed, okay? He waited for this futuristic habitation of God, the city that was built by God. By faith, Abraham obeyed. Obey is evidence of true faith. Obey means I not only believe, but I trust, and my life is changed, and my actions prove it. Jesus famously said, and it's the only time that the disciple Judas, not Iscariot, there was two guys named Judas, it's the only time that we ever hear anything from this relatively quiet, obscure disciple named Judas, where he asked Jesus a question And Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. And so you see that Jesus says basically exactly the same thing that it was communicated to Abraham when God revealed himself, appeared to him. It changed his heart, his mind. It changed his whole worldview. And he obeyed. Abraham obeyed, and he went out. And the context seems to indicate that he went out right away. He went back home. I don't know, was Sarah with him when he God appeared? We don't know those details. But he and his wife, childless, 75 years old, she's 65, they pack their belongings, and they leave everything that is secure and stable and known and comfortable and has a future. They left their investments. They left all. They packed up a few things and they moved. And he went out. Abraham obeyed. Oh my goodness, what a transformation in this man's life. And it's really not that unusual to us, is it? Because when we meet Jesus Christ, when he has appeared to us in our darkness, when Jesus, the truth of the gospel, has penetrated our spiritual lives, and we realize that he is the one true God, that he's died and he saved me and he wants me to live with him, we repent, we come out of the world. Jesus said to his disciples, I've taken you out of the world. There is a separation, not a segregation. I've separated you from the world, but I'm leaving you in the world. And that is very true for us, brothers and sisters. So immediately there's an inter- we can relate to Abraham. Oh, I've been there, done that. I understand that, Abraham and Sarah. 
God appeared to you, merciful and kind and holy and just, dependable and faithful. They turned from idols to serve the living God. Beautiful experience. And then God said, now I have a few things I'd like you to do, my son, my daughter. And we go, yes, Lord, I will do what you want me to do because you are king and I am your son and daughter and I will follow you. They obeyed. He went out not knowing where he was going. It doesn't mean he's confused. That's not a statement of, oh my God, what are we going to do now? No, it means that he was, it's just accentuating the faith and the dependence and the trust that he had in his God who had saved him. And so he went out, not knowing where he was going. Verse 9, by faith, he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. And so ultimately, as you know, guys, he, we read Genesis 11 and 12 and so on through, what is it, chapter 26 or 7, finally Abraham passes, Isaac comes on the scene. There's much written about Abraham. But he gets to this land, and he stayed there. I just want to remind you that as far as we know, he's the only one who believed. A little bit like Noah and his family in his day, only eight out of the world's population were saved. And here we are with Abram and his wife Sarah, and they've come into this foreign land, and it would appear that they're the only ones. They didn't have a church to go to. They didn't have a Bible that they could read. They didn't have Bible apps and all sorts of great study tools. They had nothing except their faith in God alone. And the inspiration from the Holy Spirit that was working actively in their lives. And it's no small thing for them, when it says, by faith, they stayed in the land of promise, which had immediate impact on the readers who were tending to drift back to the old system. They were not wanting, they were finding it difficult to stay in the faith because tribulations and persecution had come to them. It was very challenging. And so as they're standing in this living museum and the author in the spotlight is on this portrait of Abraham, Sarah, and their friend Jesus, they themselves are relating and it's like, wow, Abraham, I'm so encouraged by your life, by the fact that you obeyed and by the fact that you stayed. You didn't pack up and go back home. Evident also by the fact that it tells us in a little bit of a detail here, it says in verse 9, dwelling in tents. They never bought a home. They never bought a piece of property. Actually, Abraham bought one piece of property, and that was for his wife and for himself to be buried. But other than that, they didn't have a, a whole bunch of land that they said, this is ours. I don't know how they were able to pasture all their flocks, and he had many great flocks. If it was... If it was rented or, or how it went, but, it, but he lived in tents, and the point it was, it was just a, I'm passing through. It's a temporary dwelling. He went camping, okay? Abraham left the city of Ur in all of its prosperity 
and he went camping for the rest of his life without electrical hookups. Verse 10, for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And that's my last point, as he never strayed. He obeyed, and he went out immediately. There was just a, an immediate response, it would appear, to this idea of leaving your family, of leaving your family and your relatives. And going into a place where you're a complete stranger. And there's no dual citizenship here, okay? He's a resident alien. His residence, his citizenship, is, was transferred from earth to heaven. In, in a real practical sense, he would arrive in, in uh, Israel, in Canaan land, and he's like, yeah, you're from over there. He goes, yeah, and I'm just staying here for a while. He kept his eyes on the city whose foundations are secure, whose builder and maker is God. What the heck is that? That seems weird, doesn't it? He's looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. I don't know about you guys, but I think the only explanation for that is Revelation 21. Revelation 21, which talks about this city, the New Jerusalem. Didn't Jesus say that? I will go and prepare a place for you. And when I'm done, I'll come back. We're looking forward to that, are we not? Abraham, a brother in faith, like you and I, came to faith through an appearance of God by God's grace was given righteousness through faith like you and me and he's looking forward to the father's home heaven and to a city where God lives by faith verse 11 Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed and when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful, who had promised, I didn't read that very well, she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful, who had promised. By the way, I just want to make, insert a comment here. <laughs> because if you go back to Genesis 18, and I encourage you to do so, but uh, Genesis 18, the Lord appeared to Abraham again, and, Abraham, and we're going to look at it in a little bit here, but uh, he starts to tell Abraham, he starts to repeat something that he had told him 25 years prior, that Abraham was going to have a son. Now, by the time the Lord says this to Abraham the second or third time, Abraham is so far advanced in age, and so is Sarah, as the text indicates. In other words, she's no longer having a menstrual flow, she no longer has any eggs, and Abraham apparently is beyond the age of having a desire, or at least a manifestation of a desire. This is awkward. And uh, so God's saying all this to Abraham. Sarah's in the tent listening, 
And she starts laughing. My point is this. The text in Genesis seems to indicate Sarah was filled with unbelief and incredulity. But that's not how it's told to us here. And in fact, when you go back and you look at Noah's life, he got drunk and laid in his tent naked and his son saw him and it was disgraceful. I was like, wait a minute. Is the scripture whitewashing? Nope. Not at all. Because my Bible tells me that God said, your sin I will remember no more. God does not keep a record of wrongs. He doesn't ignore the reality that they happened. But when you put your faith in Christ, it's washed away from us. It's only the devil and our own pride or insecurity that brings it back up into our mind and torments us. But when you read these texts, Moses had his failures. Abraham had his failures multiple times. Abraham himself, you guys know this, went down into Egypt, got a little scared, got uncomfortable in his own skin, and he went from provider and protector of his wife Sarah who apparently was very beautiful, and he's like, I'm concerned they're going to kill me and get you, so just let's just lie, okay? You tell them you're my sister, and everything will be cool. Not real manly and impressive. None of that is brought up here. I'm thankful for the scriptures that are very real and tell us that they were men and women just like you and I that had their share of failures, But when the roll call is done and the light is spotlighted on your life and mine like Abraham's, none of that's going to be held against you. It's not going to be seen if you've confessed your sin. So Sarah herself conceived and she bore a child because she judged him faithful who had promised. Pretty weird, isn't it? By the time that happened, she was 90 years old. (laughs) Can you imagine a 90-year-old building a crib (laughs) and then moving in next to the elementary school and buying a 15-bedroom house? Because that's what's going to happen because God said it. (laughs) Verse 12, therefore one man and him as good as dead (laughs) were born as many as the stars of the sky in heaven innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. And that has a twofold meaning. Not only was it referring to his his genealogy, the the Jews themselves, Israel, obviously Isaac and Jacob, but also to all those who believe by faith, right? Jew and Gentile. So we're interested, Abraham and Sarah, connection, Yep, understand. It's interesting. At this point, it seems that our tour guide sort of just turns and he faces the crowd, you and me, and he wants to make a few comments. He's highlighted the fact that they obeyed and they stayed and they never strayed and they believed the impossible and saw it come to pass. And then in verses 13 to 16, he basically wants to tell us how and why that happened. Because it was pretty phenomenal. The how and the why. 
And so he says in verse 13, and he just comments now about what we've just reviewed and what we remember about these heroes and heroines. He says, these all died in faith. What's that mean? It means they believed to the end. It's the wonderful way of dying. It's that when I die, I will die in faith. I know I've said this before, but my dad died in faith. And my sister was at his bedside, not at the moment of his death, because no one was actually there. He had died or, you know, had sort of gone into uh, some sort of coma or something in the early morning when no one was in the hospital. But Val was there when Dad finally arrived to what he knew was his deathbed. He knew it. He told me. The first time I visited him, just a week prior to his death, he looked at me and said, Scott, my days are short. (laughs) He knew. He died in faith. When they transferred him out of ICU into his room and they got him into his bed and cleaned him up and he rested, he took his glasses off, put them on the end table, and he said, here I come, Jesus. He died in faith. He believed all the way to the end. Now, how did they do that? And here's where I want to think about mostly with you today. Because the application, the encouragement... It says, not having received the promises. God had said to Abraham, from you is going to come a whole nation and kings. And the world's going to be blessed by you, Abraham. And by the time Abraham and Sarah died, they had one biological son. That's it. They never saw that in physical reality but they saw it in higher realm, in a spiritual reality. Not having received the promises, but notice, but having seen them afar off. Having seen them afar off. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, what that means. It's like the prodigal who's in the pig pen, and he sees afar off, and he knows, you see, he knows the character of his father and the, and the riches and the glory of his father's home. And from his pig pen, in his brokenness, he can see and he says, my father's hired servants have bread enough to eat and I perish with hunger. In other words, his faith brought a reality a visualization, an actual experience where he could go in his mind and think of enjoying warm, fresh, sourdough bread loaded with butter and just be, oh. It's not the fact that his father had bread. It's the fact that his father is good. He could experience that. I so remember as a little boy going into the red and white store, which was predated our convenience stores today. It was kind of a staple for our little tiny of community. And standing there in that quick, creaky wooden floor in the glass checkout register thing, that was this big register, and the guy pushed all these little tabs and the thing would come up on the thing. My dad would pull out cash. And the whole time that's, handing, that's happening, I'm standing there looking at the candy jar with the round red things that have the one cent deal on them, I can see, believe me, 
I knew what it was like to put one of those babies in my mouth. And I'm experiencing that. And then I became a man, and I put away childish things. And then I look at women. And then I begin to realize and see and to think about and experience and visualize a reality. That's what it means. He saw far off. Why? Because of the appearance of God in his heart. And it encompassed his whole mind. He died in faith. I don't need to see the promises. I've already seen them. I've experienced the reality of God's glory. Bye-bye, Isaac. See you later. It says he embraced them. That's the next thing. He embraced them. It means to pull into fellowship, to welcome, to receive joyfully. It seems to me that Abraham and Sarah fix their minds on things above, not on the things of this earth. Because as they looked around them, they're foreigners. They're pilgrims. We live in tents. People around them had villages and towns and homes and vineyards and all this other stuff going on. For Abraham, I'm just passing through. He could see afar off and he embraced the reality. And then finally it says that he confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Do you see it there in verse 13? He confessed that, which literally means that he used words. He spoke freely. He did not deny. It seems to indicate, hear me out, brothers and sisters, it seems to indicate that people questioned them. Yo, where'd you come from? Er, yeah, I know, I'm asking you, where'd you come from? Er, uh, stop stuttering, man. No, I came from Er. <laughs> Trying to be funny. And so they'd say, Er. Well, Er, at this time, was this fascinating, wonderful, it was like London, it was like New York, I don't know, it was like Singapore, whatever. And so the people go, oh, so let me get this straight. You left Ur to come here and to spend the rest of your life camping in a tent. What are you doing, man? <laughs> what brought you to this part of the world? Anyway, why would you do that? Well, it's not what brought me, it's who brought me. God appeared to me. He loves me. And that's what moved me. I want to obey him. So why are you here? <laughs> because of the majesty and the beauty and the glory of God. So when do you think you'll go home? Uh, when I die. Heaven is my home. You see, my home is where my father lives. My citizenship is in heaven. I'm guessing that it, that's what 
all that is included in the fact that he confessed that he's a stranger and a pilgrim. Verse 14, for those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. They seek a homeland. In verse 15, and I just will begin to close here, but I just wanted to emphasize something that struck me. It says, and truly, and the author goes on a little bit further in his commentary on the how and the why of Abraham and Sarah were able to obey and stay and not stray over the course of their lifetime all the way to the end, which is so desperately needed for all of us to hear, to be encouraged by their faith. He says, and truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. And you know what? That struck me. And it struck me, and I wanted to strike all of us. If they had called to mind. If is conditional. In other words, and, and, well, sorry, and if they had called to mind, literally, if they had kept thinking about is literally what it means. It's the imperfect tense. If they had kept thinking about back home and the, it's like the people in the wilderness, they kept thinking about the, the, the wonderful foods that they ate back in Egypt, as difficult as it was, at least it had some spice and some variation and some... You know, there was a buffet. Out here, it's nothing but the same old manna. If they had kept thinking about, they would have made provision for themselves to go back. They would have packed up their belongings and re-gone back to Ur. And so I just want to say to you, my brothers and sisters, something that I think is very important for all of us. This seems to clearly indicate that Abraham and Sarah disciplined their minds. They disciplined their minds. You and I have a choice about what we think about. They disciplined their minds. In the face of loneliness, they're the only ones. In the face of isolation, they couldn't go to church. They couldn't talk with another person who actually shared the same faith as them. And the challenge, it brought a huge stress in their marriage. You know this. If you're familiar with the story, this was a major tension point in the life of Abraham and Sarah. Because they both, like you and I, had serious doubts about, has God said Can we really trust the impossible, the unseen? And they disciplined their minds if they had kept thinking about where they came from, but they didn't. And the text tells us that they were seeking, and they were embracing, and they were confessing. They were thinking about God, and they fixed their minds on what is true about what they knew about him. And I think, and I challenge all of us, that when those questions come up in our minds, theological questions, or the reality of the invisible, of the impossible, of the future, take those times and capture those moments. Capture those moments by faith. Bring scripture, bring truth. Talk with others. (coughs) Excuse me, listen to worship. Abraham and Sarah made themselves think 
about the good things of God. I was doing some reading this week, and I came across a quote by John Owen. John Owen, famous, maybe the most famous Puritan theologian. He was hampered in ministry and harassed by the government. And he also had to witness the death of all 11 of his children and of his wife, Mary. And after all that, he wrote these words. Contemplation of the glory of Christ will restore and compose the mind. It will lift the minds and hearts of believers above all the troubles of this life and is the sovereign antidote that will expel all the poison that is in us, which otherwise might perplex and enslave the soul. Let us assure ourselves there is no better way for our healing and deliverance, yea, no other way but this alone, namely the obtaining a fresh view of the glory of Christ by faith and a steady abiding therein. Abraham's my friend. He's my brother and he's yours. And so is Sarah. They walked by faith the same as you and me. They had their problems, they had their failures, but they disciplined their minds in times of great hardship to think about who appeared to them and the impact that made on their lives and how there was just this instant response. They could see afar off. They could see afar off. I wonder if this kind of counsel is what inspired Paul to famously write Philippians 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Take your thoughts captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ in the moments of when we have a crisis of faith in our life. And you know what's fascinating? Is now we can read verse 16. It says, but now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. I find that really appropriate and edifying and cool that the feelings came with the thinking, but it followed the thinking. Desire there is the same word that Paul would use of having a, being covetousness. Anybody has a love for money, it's the same word, love for money. There's a deep passion, a reaching out. I, I want that thing. And you see, but because they disciplined their minds and they thought about all that is true and noble, right, pure, lovely, excellent, praiseworthy, admirable, it's God himself in Jesus Christ. That it, it, it inspired, it changed them and they began to seek after more and more of him. He must increase, John the Baptist would say. 
And that's how and why they obeyed and stayed and never strayed. Oh, our tour guide has one last comment before we move on to Moses. Or sorry, Abraham. We have one more picture of Abraham. But our tour guide says, and therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. This is my son. This is my daughter. Look at this guy. Look at this girl. Well, just in closing, I think we've taken something good from examining our hero and heroine with their friend Jesus. But I want to say to you that uh, Abraham and Sarah were not the first to leave everything and to follow God. They certainly weren't the last. Well, maybe they were the first, but they certainly weren't the last. There were and are many, many more who have seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and have embraced the hope that is set before them and confessed and left all to follow Jesus. Really, is there any difference between Abraham and Sarah and a bunch of wise men who follow a star? and show up with a great confession? Where is he that is born, the king? It's not he's going to become a king. He's king at birth. Where is he? Is it any different than Peter, who got out of all that was familiar and safe and secure, a boat, and walking on water? Is there any difference? Not really, because he kept his eyes fixed on the glory of Jesus Christ. And he came to know him well enough to know, I can actually ask this ridiculous question. Call me to you. Come, Peter. Or maybe most impressive of all, in my mind, is Paul. He not only abandoned all, he abandoned himself. He said, I don't count my life dear to myself. He got so possessed by the glory of God that he's like, do with me what you want. Now that's a free man. That is a free man that I only can hope to scratch the surface of that kind of commitment. But there's actually one more, and you know where I'm going. There's another one who left all that was secure. And that's Jesus himself. Isn't it interesting? In John's prelude to his gospel, it says that when Jesus came, he came to his own and his own received him not. The creator had come and no one recognized him as creator. The Messiah, the Savior, the long-expected Messiah had come and no one saw it. Talk about isolation. Talk about loneliness. Talk about 
a pilgrim and a sojourner. Jesus said, the foxes have better benefits than I have. <laughs> they at least got a place they can call home. A lot of fox around these days, by the way. You seeing as many as I am? Like, I never used to see so many fox. They're, like, running all over the place. Birds have nests. I don't have anywhere to lay my head. This is not my home. I'm just passing through. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Dwelt literally means tabernacled. He put on a tent and he lived here temporarily. And people would often ask him, just like they asked Abraham and Sarah, where did you come from? Heaven where there's no darkness at all. So let me get this straight. You left heaven to come here and to spend your life here <laughs> with men? Why would you do that? What brought you into this world? And it's nothing but love and mercy and the compassion of God. So that's what brought you. Why are you here then? I'm here to seek a bride. I'm here to pour my love into your heart and to give you the guarantee of your presence in heaven with me forever. That is my Holy Spirit. But when do you think you'll go back home? When my work is done, <laughs> I will die and rise again, and I will take captivity captive and give gifts to men. So a beautiful account. The one who appeared to Abraham has appeared to us. And he's calling us unto himself, brothers and sisters. Set your mind on things above. It's a discipline and one that we need to work hard at. Any discipline is hard work. It just is. Take your thoughts captive. Make yourself... Think about what is true and noble. Make yourself think about the gospel itself. Look long and hard at the cross, at the empty tomb, at the resurrection. Count up the stones of remembrance that you've had in your life. Oh yeah, I remember when you provided for me here. I remember this answer in prayer. I remember that word of prophecy that came to me out of nowhere that greatly strengthened me at a moment of crisis. And I remember, and I remember, and I remember, and those are the things I remember. And I choose not to remember all the sinful behaviors that so easily can take me captive and enslave my soul. And therefore, we will stay and we will not stray. So let's stand and pray. And thank you, Lord, for the testimony of Abraham and Sarah and that you were their friend, and you're our friend. That we're kept by the power of God through faith, both working in harmony. The faith that you've given us that causes us to worship, to obey, to go out by faith. But we do know the end, Lord. And there is an inheritance, and I pray that my brothers and sisters would enjoy you all the days of their lives, just as Abraham and Sarah did. I believe they died with a smile on their face. 
We give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.